At the end of service, we are going to be having a baptism. It's one of my favorite things to do as a family. If you have not been baptized, if you have asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, if you have not yet been baptized in water as a testimony, feel free to talk to us. Feel free to make contact. You can email the church office. We can get in touch with you. But it's such a beautiful thing, and it's such an honor to be able to do that. I wanted to speak today, feel like such a pastor, what I'm about to say, from a familiar passage. But it's from Isaiah chapter 6. And before I do that, I wanted to give a little context to, to this passage. When I read it, everyone would be like, oh yeah, I know that one. But during the time of Isaiah, there was a king. The king's name was Uzziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he came to wear the crown. He was following up someone who had not followed after God, and it cost him his life. 16 years old, he's the second longest reigning king at 52 years. So you have this man whose time of ruling is marked by this. Second Chronicles 26, it tells me that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. 26.5 tells me he set himself to seek God and God made him prosper. He made war, he built cities. He wasn't a king that was on the defense, he was on the offense. God helped him. His fame spread, for he became very strong. He built towers in Jerusalem in the wilderness. He dug wells. He had large herds, farmers, vine dressers. The Bible tells us about the great armies that he built. It says that he was on the cutting edge of technology, that he had machines which were set on the towers to shoot arrows and throw great stones. But what's wild with his story is it's being told, just as great as it seemed, it almost comes to a screeching halt. Second Chronicles 26, verses 15 and 16, his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. So here's what happened. He was anointed to be king. God anointed people for certain roles, for certain mantles. He was anointed to be king. Well, people had been anointed to be priests. And so in his pride, what he decided to do was he decided that he was going to take the priest's job and he was going to go and he was going to burn incense, job that he was not allowed to do. But see, when we get prideful, we can kind of dismiss the rules and be like, you know what, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And so his, he approaches to do this. There are 80 priests who come because they know this is not going to be good. And you can tell they're probably wanting him to, don't do this, don't do this. His reaction, another one of pride, he turns in anger. As he turns, the Bible says that leprosy broke out on his forehead right before those priests. He was struck right there because of his disobedience, because of his pride. The chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. Fifty-two years of ruling, and this is how it ends. 
Again, it's like you can hear the brakes screech at this moment. And so you have this man, you have a nation, their leader has just fallen. Foreign powers are rising up all around. All their enemies are getting stronger. They have just lost their lead. And in a way, it was almost like a reflection of how God's people did. Throughout history, God's people would follow God, they would prosper. At some point, they would lose their edge because they became comfortable. Then came pride, then came destruction. And so it was just a really sad mirror of what these people had done so many times. Again, this is a great feel-good way to start this sermon, but it is giving context because during the time of Isaiah, the first five chapters of that book, Isaiah, the king, was alive. So I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, this is Isaiah's words. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and he had in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Revival's coming. Revival's coming. I stand here with such certainty in saying that. I've been talking to people. I feel like, Rachel, every time I talk to you for the past couple of weeks, it's been revival, revival, revival. Like, it's coming. You feel it, and you feel it in the air when you're talking to people, that they just know. You know God is up to something. When revival is in the air, there are a few things I want to share with you, things that we could do that we learn from Isaiah. Number one, when revival's in the air, we must look up. You need to look up. The devil's job is to deceive. His job is to distract. And so what the devil specializes in is getting you to look down here. He never wants you looking up at God. He always wants you distracted. I'm going to get real for a moment. Something I believe that the devil has taken a foothold in churches at this very minute has to do with the Asbury University revival. What do I mean by this? I mean, the Bible tells us, in no uncertain terms, in 1 John 4, 1, behold, beloved, I can't read, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they're of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. And something that's happening is revivals are breaking out all over the place. And I'm going to clue you in on something and they're real. And, oh, okay. Well, I feel like what the devil has done, though, is 
He has deceived people into being like the spiritual Gestapo to say this is not a revival, this is not a revival, this is definitely not a revival. And it's weird the things they use to qualify that. I was laughing with someone last night. Like someone will say, well, post proof, and they'll post a meme. Like a meme is not really proof that God is doing or not doing something. If that's your point of reference, then you've been on social media too long. Another thing that I heard is, well, that revival at that university can't be real because it didn't start in a church. Hey, newsflash, the church didn't start in a church. (laughs) God is doing something, and what we need to do is embrace the move of God. When you have a Methodist university where people are laying in the floor and the Holy Spirit is falling like never before, It's beautiful, and it's coming. It is coming. I do not want to relegate myself to be a spiritual Pharisee that insulates myself in a religion that lacks the power of God unto salvation. Here's something that I wrote last week. I shared with the staff, and it messed me up when I was praying. I feel like when I'm praying for revival... This God whisper, stop crying out to see people doing that which you're not willing to do. A true move of God can't come when my focus is on this world. True move of God can't come when my hyper focus is on the things of the church and I fail to look up at the God who is the one who sends revival. Isaiah only had this vision after King Uzziah died. I'm going to get real with you. There are some habits, there are some mindsets, there are some strongholds, there are some lines we have drawn, there's some gods that we have made up that we must let die. There are prayers that some of us have prayed for God to kill some of those gods before us, and it seems like they have died, but in a spiritual sense, it's like we run for the AED because we want them to be around. It is time to let things die. When God tells you this is not going to be part of where we're going, you need to trust him on that. When I see God, just like with Isaiah, everything changes. This experience that he had is even referenced in John 12, 41. John 12, 41 says, these things Isaiah said when he saw God's glory and spoke of him. A revival encounter is not going to be a spectator sport. It's going to require all of us. It's going to require us being all in. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I love what Isaiah sees in this chapter. He sees God sitting on a throne, seated. Oh, I love this. The atheist would say there is no throne. The humanist would say there is a throne, but it's reserved for all of us. But the almighty God, sovereign above all, has the sole authority to sit on that throne. He is above all without comparison. Nothing even comes close to to his matchless word. And it says that the entire temple was filled with the train of his robe. 
Now this, if you read about biblical history, you will understand that kings did not have long trains on their robe because a human king would need to be in a place where he could stand up and command people to serve him and he would have to you know, beat his chest and do the things that kings did. And if he got worried, he would need to pace around. But God does not have any of those worries. And so he is able to wear a robe that the train would fill the whole temple. And I say that in a sense because when I'm reading it, I just think that there's times in faith where you're thinking, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, imagine the hem of his garment covering you. You have God who is sitting here. And he's surrounded by seraphim. I was going to post a picture of seraphim, but they're terrifying. They're known as the burning ones. Bible tells me they had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And the seraphim, without saying too much here, are speaking to me. And you know what they're telling me? That God wants twice as much reverence from me as he wants me being busy doing things. Don't get so busy doing things for God that you forget to worship God. And this they cry out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They aren't crying out to God saying this. They're crying out to one another. And this is what's amazing. They were created to worship, and yet they were blown away every moment with the greatness of God and had to call out to each other. God's presence, it brings forth the kind of praise that echoes. It brings forth a declaration in the house. When they cry out holy three times in the Hebrew, when something is repeated, it means it's intensified. They cry out holy three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Spirit. Right there, it is such a picture of what God is doing. God, you are holy. You are separate from everything. If everything that we knew, if everything that existed were to end tomorrow, the great I am would still be separate from everything. Someone here has been shaken up by the death of the king. Someone here, something that you have placed a crown on, something that you have revered, it has gone. It has died. It has, it's over. But we don't want to let go of that. God's saying, look up, look up. A heart reminder. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's full. There's nowhere that I can look that his glory is not there. The seraphim, they teach me something else. That their voice, when they're praising God, it carries weight. It says when those majestic angels cried out that the doorposts shook. And I was reminded of the fact that when you're learning about, you know, tornado safety, one of the places that you can run during a tornado, a safe place is in a door frame. If you're out of other safe places, I guess. And it's amazing that the place that I would run for refuge, that the God I serve is like when my glory is in the house, I'll shake that too. I've got you. Trust the plan. Some of us have been shook, but God's bringing a shaking. Some of us circumstances have placed us where we would not want to be. But when God shakes things up, 
it's going to look different. It's going to feel different. Those seraphim, they teach me this, that if God created it, it was made to praise him. He knit me together in my mother's womb. I was made to praise him. Want to know why I'm so passionate about life? It has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with the fact that those babies were made to worship. It has to do with them being created in the image of God. I want the door frames of this house to shake, not because of how loud we get, but because of the praise that goes forth and the weight of that praise that's there. The room, it says, was filled with smoke. It's funny because I'll play Call of Duty and you get these smoke grenades and the thing with the smoke grenades, you throw them and people can't see what you're doing. And so I can read this and be like, oh, that's what's going on. No, that's not what's going on at all. The room was filled and it's amazing that that Shekinah glory being so thick that Isaiah would be breathing it in. Times that you feel like you can't even catch your breath, know that the very glory of God is there and it's something that you can breathe in. Revival causes me to do something. Second thing, revival will cause us to look within. The presence of God wrecks me. If you've ever seen me fall apart on this stage, when I feel the spirit of God on me, I go to pieces. I melt like wax. What I love about this is up until this time, Isaiah may have thought that he was doing just fine, but when the presence of God was there, woe is me is the first thing that flew out of his mouth. I am undone is the next thing that he says. An encounter with God will reveal your true heart. When Isaiah was there, he was looking around and he's thinking with those seraphim, I'm not like the angels. And then he sees God. He's like, and I am definitely not like God when it comes to this heart. I love that because I feel like we get to a place where we think we've arrived. I want the Holy Spirit to always make me melt. And I want the gospel to always make me examine this heart. You know, we can get in church and we can think that the gospel is only for the unsaved, but that saving power is the very thing that sustains us. It's the very thing that when I walk with him, it squares me up. That those words that we use like sanctification, draw a little closer, lay this down, seek holiness. Those are things that are tied and rooted in that gospel. When we talk about a revival that's breaking out, the gospel is being shared in those places. If you don't think that it is, maybe talk to someone who's actually been there. God is doing something. The vision of the throne of God, what I love about this, it didn't make Isaiah feel good right away. Here's the thing, when it comes to revival, we often think that revival is for the purpose of making us feel good. Isaiah didn't feel good. It didn't say, you know, and Isaiah was gleeful and there were pinatas because he had arrived at this place, you know. And it, no, it says that he was undone. He was in pieces there before God. Matthew 21, 44 says, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. When I come before my Lord Jesus and I'm real, it's gonna hurt sometimes because this human heart it doesn't look like him as much as it should. 
The more clearly we see God, the more clearly we become aware of what is going on in this heart. Had half the church mad, it's not this church, I'm saying the church, universal church, because there was a he gets us ad at the Super Bowl. You had Christians mad because there was a commercial about Jesus. I don't know what to do. And while I can understand the idea of he gets us, I would ask, do we get him? This idea of like buddy Jesus versus savior Jesus that came to die for our sins, I want to press into that. Revival. Spurgeon was talking and he said, God will never do anything with us until he has first of all undone us. Revival, there's going to be repentance, there's going to be confession of sin, there's going to be spiritual surgery on a scale that we haven't seen before. Revival means that a sinful heart is revealed and laid bare to the one who started it in motion. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. What we want to see, we need to dive into head first on our own. It seems like we want the lost world to come running, but do we come running? It's not a performative thing. It's the fact that when you're excited about something, you can't hold it back. That's what will draw people. One of the seraphim, they fly to Isaiah, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Imagine something being so hot that an angel would have to reach in the potato masher drawer to get tongs out to pick a coal up. Imagine that. It's hot. The throne is reserved for God. The altar was made to cleanse us. When he takes this hot coal out, that heavenly fire will cause a change in the way this mouth works. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth with it. There are times that I'm like, God, anything. But I'm thinking if somebody came toward me with a red hot coal toward my mouth, like, Zach, if they did that, I wouldn't be like, bring it on. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's commitment at that place. While it seems like this would be harmful, the word doesn't say that Isaiah screamed out in pain. Because when the majesty's present, I don't feel pain the way the world feels pain. When the majesty's present, I don't suffer like the world suffers. I don't mourn like the world mourns. I know that the pain will serve a higher purpose when it comes to God. Romans 5, 3 through 5, I believe that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into the hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Verse seven says, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Isaiah's sin needed to be burned away. What I love about this is whenever I saw this or read this story when I was younger, I always thought like the angel would get the coal and just float over really gently to Isaiah. Just tap him on the lips. But when you read the meaning of this word, 
It is almost the same exact word, struck, that was used when Isaiah was struck with leprosy. The posture of your heart when it comes to the altar makes all the difference. He was struck. Isaiah was struck because he wouldn't let go of pride. Isaiah was struck because he was undone. Your sin is purged. That word purged, it means an atonement has been made. You have been pardoned. From that moment on, his speech probably was a little different. What seemed like a wound was the commissioning of a warrior for God. I say that to someone here because what has felt like a wound, God will use for his glory. Look up. Look inside or whatever I put there. And the last one, when revival falls, look out. When revival falls, it's time to look out. Once Isaiah had met with the Lord, he had been convicted of sin and the guilt had been cleansed from his life, he was ready to serve God. Here's the truth. When revival breaks out, it won't be able to stay within these walls. It will draw men, but you know what? More importantly, it will send men. When revival falls, people are going to hear their calling. They're going to be reminded of their calling. God asks this question in verse 8, whom will I send and who will go for us? It's funny because God already knows the answer. But there are times that he wants us to speak destiny. He's going to get alone with you and be like, what are you going to say? There's a work to do. The reason for the outpouring that has come is the hour is getting late. The time of the Lord's return is closer than it's ever been. Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. When God asks, who would say, here am I, send me? Whose declaration is going to shake the doorposts? And when you understand that God's call is not going to come with an itinerary, it comes at a price. That when it comes, it's going to require every bit of us. All those verses, and Isaiah hadn't even heard the voice of God yet. That's what was amazing, standing there in awe, standing there taking it in. And then when God speaks, he immediately answers. He took it in, the sights, the sound, the power. In our human mind, we always want God to speak first. Some of us are going through things right now that you're like, God, if I could just hear you. Oh, he's present. He's present. Don't miss the things that are shaking because you're so focused on the God plan turning out your way. Be focused on what God is doing right now because there are such beautiful things, such beautiful things. Maybe the word, instead of revival, that I want to start calling out for is presence. God, I didn't hear you, but I knew you were there. God, I didn't hear you, but I sensed that presence as those angels were circling. God, I knew in your timing that you had this. When I do that, my heart won't hesitate to cry out to God. My heart won't hesitate to say, here am I. And when I declare things to God, I want to declare them with an exclamation point. 
the gospel, that true revival, it's always going to point men toward the cross. It's always going to reveal what's really in our hearts. It's always going to purge unrighteousness. It's always going to prepare our mouths to speak. The presence will position us to hear God's voice clearly. For anyone sitting here, it's time to dig deeper than we ever have before. It's time to get scary in our commitment. I had shared a couple of weeks ago that as I pray, like, God, protect this church from drama. And as I said, because a healthy church, we can stray there. But in this moment, protect us, God, from ourselves because we are scared at times to go where you're asking us to go. Be faithful in those things that God is nudging you to do because I'm telling you what, and I believe this with all my heart. Dina, I don't think he's giving a church nudge as much as he's giving individual nudges in this season because, see, the church nudge means anybody could step up. Anybody could step up and do it, right? But I think there's individual things that he's doing right now. There are those whispers that you know that you know, that you are so uncomfortable in situations. It's almost like God's saying, shed your skin. Be who I've called you to be. When we press into that, the intensity in this house is going to be turned up. And I'm not saying it in a way like, we'll act crazier than ever before. No. I think some people who are shouters are going to become melters. And I think some people that are melters are going to become shouters. I think that we are going to operate in a boldness that we don't want to wait. And we, when we're in the hallway out there and someone's saying, yeah, I've had a rough week, that hands are getting laid on right there. That we seek for the powerful, that we live in that place with God. If you bow your heads. We're going to pray. Do I pray that I don't stand in your way? I pray in this house, God, you would begin to do things that will blow our minds. Father, I pray that your gentle whispers, the nudges that you have been applying, that we would listen. And Lord, I pray that in the coming weeks, as this atmosphere has been electric, that even that goes to a place, Lord, that we're just in awe of you. Shake the doorposts, God. This is your house. In Jesus' name, amen.